I hope that y'all were encouraged by those two videos and certainly some of those church planting efforts that essentially you are a part of. Because of you, we are able to come alongside and support many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in different parts of uh, certainly Texas and now into Mexico. As we turn our attention to Colossians 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 11. And if you are new, we've been in this series in the book of Colossians. It's this small book in the New Testament between what is Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. And as we walk into chapter 3, we see this transition from the Apostle Paul. But before we get there, man, I want to take you back just a couple of weeks ago when we observed Holy Week and worked our way up to Easter or what is Resurrection Sunday. And in that time, we concluded with the baptism of several individuals who had come to faith in Christ Jesus. As they approached the waters, if you were here, you got to see them nervous. You got to see the water moving because their sin was coming out of them. You got to see them nervous as they were headed towards, um, I don't know what we want to call it. It sounds weird saying it's a horse trough. It's a tank, right? But you saw them approaching uh, the waters of baptism, and they read portions of their testimony. And in particular, they told you what God had done for them. And once they were immersed in water and brought back up, everyone was cheering and celebrating and loud screams and whistles. And many of you were even crying. I want to take you back now, in addition to that, to think through your baptism, Christian. Do you remember when you were baptized? Do you remember where you were when you were baptized? Do you remember who was there? Baptism is a public testimony of the, of the work of God for and in the sinner. And while baptism does not save, it is a remembrance of God's work. It's a personal testimony of who you now are in Christ and a public proclamation of a new life in Christ. That is, you will walk in the faith that you have received. The German reformer and theologian Martin Luther did not hold back when talking about baptism. Here's what he says Baptism signifies the old Adam in us, signifies that the old Adam in in us is to be drowned by daily sorrow and repentance and perish with all sins and evil lusts, and that the new man should daily come forth again and rise, who shall live before God in righteousness and purity forever." What's so fascinating about Martin Luther's comment on baptism is the portions that he talks about the daily. It is the daily putting uh, our old self to death in repentance, and it is the daily walking in newness of life. That although there are these moments, these wonderful occasions of what God has done, there is also the regular ongoing, daily living it out. And living it out consists of putting the old self to death and putting on the new self. As we enter into chapter 3 this morning, the Apostle Paul will use language of baptism in order to remind the Colossians and us of their new identity in Christ. 
And for us, right now, we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. The purpose of this regular reminder is because you and I are quick to forget who we are in Christ and even faster to default to who we once were apart from Christ. And when we are reminded of who Jesus says we are, we are reminded of what we do in the Christian life. We are reminded that the Christian life is never separated or isolated from theology and practice. They always go hand in hand. And so let me pray briefly, and we'll dig into this text that Jay just read. Once again, that's Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus' work for us and in us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's work around us. This morning, may your word be sweeter than honey. May our hearts be aligned with your will. May Jesus be exalted. May we be sanctified and your glory be captivated this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 through 11, I'd like to break them down into three sections. Ultimately, we're going to be talking about identity. And because of that, here are the three sections that we're going to uncover. I don't remember the verses, but I remember the sections. We're going to look at identity requiring theology, identity requiring practice, And then finally, identity requiring community. I think this is on the notes that are online, so I hope you can keep up. Chapter 3 begins to introduce the practice of theology. And I want you to note two important things from the Bible, but in particular from the Apostle Paul. The first thing, especially as we walk into chapter 3, the first thing is that the Apostle Paul never separates theology from practice. Chapter 3 is the start of moving from belief, that is where we have been in chapters 1 and 2. It is the start of moving from belief to behavior, from doctrine to devotion, from theology to putting that theology into practice. They are never separate from one another. If we separate them, in other words, if it is all theology and no practice, then we have a Christianity that is stagnant, stubborn, and arrogant. But if it is all practice and no theology, then we have a shallow faith. Paul never separates theology from practice. And when we do that, when we keep them together, what we see is a strong foundation in the faith. And so once more, as we walk into chapter 3, we are going from belief to behavior, doctrine to devotion, and theology to practice. And to give you a little bit more detail surrounding that, when you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul about every single time, half of his letters, the, the first portion of his letters, deals a lot with theology and doctrine. This is who God is. This is what God has done 
for sinners through Jesus. This is who you are in Christ. This is who the Holy Spirit is and how his work is applied to you because of Jesus. And then the second half of his letters tend to be, now, because I have told you all of this, this is how you apply that. This is how the work of Jesus, this is how the gospel informs your daily life, your ethics, your relationships, your vocation, uh, church life. Theology and practice are never separate. The second thing I want you to know is the order in which they come. Theology is always first. What we believe always informs how we live. And so when you look through, for instance, the writings of Paul, it is the front end, lots of theology. He gives you this big vision for who God is and what God has done, and then walks us into practice. Theology, that is God's word, is our foundation. Practice is standing upon that foundation. So those are two things I just want you to note as we transition into chapter three, because this isn't the last time we're obviously going to look at one of Paul's epistles. First half, theology. This is who God is. This is what God has done. Second half, practice. This is how that informs how you walk. So, verse one. Paul opens. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, the, the first word if could be better translated to since. And so he would be saying, since you have been raised with Christ, Paul is speaking to them about their own resurrection. That is their baptism. It's almost as if he is leading them to similar questions or to similar thoughts that I just gave you. Hey, let's look back at what Christ has done for you, that you died to your sin and you were brought out of that in new life. He is reminding them of their identity, that the old is gone and behold, the new is here in Christ. He reminds them of this again in verse three. If we move forward quickly. In verse three, Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The word hidden in verse three means to be kept from, or it's better translated as removed from, in this case, harm, implying that the believer is safe in Christ. Before God tells you what to do, Christian, he tells you who you are. And God, through Paul, has been saying this the whole time in chapters one and in chapters two. He has reminded the Colossians and consequently ourselves that we are redeemed, that we have been bought out of our bondage to sin that we have been reconciled to the Father because of Jesus, that we have been forgiven of our sin because Jesus bore our sin on the cross and gives us his righteousness, that we have been made new because of Jesus. You need to know that identity requires the right theology. We cannot forget that, nor can we dismiss that, nor can we water that down. Identity requires the right theology. Many, many months ago, uh, someone sent me 
a, a video of this pastor and said, hey, could you look at this video? Tell me what you think. And what the pastor was preaching on was a verse in Genesis centered around Adam and Eve in the garden. And he goes on to express and elaborate five things that God does um, for Adam and Eve. And when talking specifically about their identity, that is who they were, it was fourth or fifth on the list. One, I didn't like that. Two, when we go back to Genesis as an example, upon God creating Adam and Eve, he says, let us make them in our image. The first thing God does is makes image bearers. That's the identity that Adam and Eve have, that they are image bearers, that they are going to reflect the glory and character of God. That is who they are. That is who they were designed to be, so to speak. In Genesis 2, toward the second half, that is where we see God say, hey, I want you to cultivate the land. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. What to do comes after he tells them who they are. Identity requires the right theology, and that's what Paul presses on. And we're going to review in a moment what he talked about last week. We'll get there in a bit. But once more, identity requires the right theology. Before God tells you what to do, he tells you who you are. As we move forward, Paul begins to tell them what to do in light of their new identity. This is the second half of verse one and into uh, verse two. Paul begins to tell them, okay, in light of what Jesus has done for you, because you are raised in Christ, because you have a new identity, we need to discuss how to stay in a constant remembrance of that identity. Elsewhere in scripture, you see Paul repeatedly tell the churches, brothers, let me remind you, lest you forget, don't forget. Hey, let me remind, he's constantly reminding them of their identity. And because we need to be reminded regularly of our identity, one of the questions that logically comes from that is, well, how do we constantly remember who we are in Christ? And so Paul answers this question in the second half of verse one. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse two, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The manner in which we stay focused on who we are in Christ is by placing great mental focus on Christ. By seeking him and setting our minds that on things that are above. When you look at the word seek, it could be translated or, or the definition of that word would be number one, it's present tense. So Paul is telling the Colossians and us right now when he says seek the things that are above, he's telling you Christian to do that right now. Not after lunch, not later on, not when you get some quiet time to yourself, not when you get in your car, not when you answer the text message, right now. It is present tense and it is an ongoing command. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on Christ that is ongoing, present tense, right now. Additionally, the word seek means kept on always, or it could be better said, always preoccupied. That your mind is always preoccupied with the person and work of Jesus. 
And the Christian can do this. Paul in Romans 12 tells the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That you, Christian, have the Holy Spirit residing in you, which means not only have you received a new heart, but you've received a new mind. Your mind has been renewed, and because your mind is renewed, you have new desires. You can do this. You can seek the things that are above. You can set your minds on things that are in heaven and not on earth. And the truth about that is that it's going to require a lot of mental energy. And so we need to remember that the mind is a muscle. The mind is a muscle. And if we're going to follow through with what we say we believe, then our minds must be worked out. There is debate with this uh, philosophy and strength training. It's called the mind-muscle connection. And the idea of the mind-muscle connection, uh, there's a lot of science debating it, blah, blah, blah. But the idea centered around the mind-muscle connection is that if I put enough mental attention and, and, and concentration and focus on one particular muscle that is isolated, right, uh, what can happen is that that muscle can uh, receive more blood flow. The fibers are going to contract a lot more, making that muscle stronger and bigger or whatever it is that you're trying to do, right? But the idea is in order for that to happen, you must be so concentrated and so focused mentally on that muscle that is isolated, Similarly, when it comes to us setting our minds on things that are above, we must have great mental attention and concentration on the person and work of Jesus. Paul says it this way in chapter three, right? He says, seek the things that are above, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See, in that little phrase, what Paul is talking about is you're not just randomly thinking about Jesus. You're setting your mind on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. That not only must Christ be the center of your attention or the center of your mental focus, but it's his supremacy, it is his authority, it is his sovereignty, it is his sufficiency. That is what we set our minds to. Because when we set our minds on that, it's not simply just good or a good workout. It is so that we would grow in maturity as we practice our faith. So Christian, what preoccupies your mind? It sounds like a lot of mental work, but I'm pretty sure our minds are preoccupied with other things constantly. So it's not foreign to us. So what is preoccupying your mind, Christian? What is it that you actually do take the time to set aside and drive a lot of mental focus on? What preoccupies your mind? Finally, in verses one through four, Paul tells us the why behind setting our minds on things that are above. Verse four, Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Man, why do we set our minds on things that are above? Why do we set our minds where Christ is seated? Because Jesus is your life. Jesus is your life. And one day he will return. 
And one day we will be with him forever. That is why we set our minds on things that are above. Once again, right now. It's almost as if we're living in that place when we, when we are with Christ for all eternity. It's as if we are living that now. You want to live your best life now? Set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated. That is how you do it. So it's going to take energy. It's going to take time. It means our minds will be preoccupied with the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Look back to what Martin Luther said regarding baptism. The daily repentance of the old self. The daily moving forward in righteousness. Mental energy is going to be a daily battle. But it's not impossible. We can do it. Identity requires theology. Next, in verses 5 through 10, Paul shares that identity requires practice. That is, who God says we are determines what we do. And in this section, there are uh, some positive and negatives. In other words, what, what Paul is going to do is list a series of vices or, or sins that must be put to death. And in the next section of chapter three, he's going to elaborate on what it looks like to walk in newness of life. Chapters three and four will deal with everything on how the gospel or how our identity in Christ informs our relationships and our vocation. Here in chapter three, we're going to see how our identity in Christ informs our ethics. And before I jump in, I want to provide you, church, with uh, a little bit of encouragement. We're going to read this list, and you're going to get uncomfortable, and it's meant to make you uncomfortable. But because of who you are in Christ, this doesn't have dominion over you. You can put these sins to death. You can do this because Christ has given you the power to put them to death through the work of the Holy Spirit residing in you. So hear that before, because we're going to walk through these. It's going to be a little uncomfortable. The Spirit of God is going to convict us. He's doing his job. He is working in us to make us more like Jesus. So you're going to get uncomfortable. That's part of it. Just don't stay there in that place of conviction. We're going to need to act. Nevertheless, here we go. Beginning in verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So it's as if verses one through four, he's reminding you, hey, this is who you are. You are rooted in Christ. You are established in Christ. You have received faith in Christ. This is who you are. Therefore, put the old self to death. So identity requires practice, right? And here's what I want you to notice as Paul launches in putting our sin to death. Paul doesn't hold back. As Christians, we must put our sin to death. Paul says it similarly to the Romans in chapter 8. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, 
you will live. We need to talk a little bit about what Paul is saying in Colossians 3.5, and we need to talk a little bit about what Paul is saying to the Romans in chapter 8. Number one, I want you to notice how serious Paul writes about sin. He says, put it to death. He does not say, excuse your sin. He does not say, manage your sin. He does not say, ignore it so that you don't see it. He says, kill it. You must put your sin to death. I met with an individual some time ago, and he began to tell me about things that he was wrestling with and struggling through. And he goes on to ask a question uh, in asking, what is wrong with me? Now, this is an individual who is, who is a believer, loves Jesus, has followed Jesus for many, many years. And he goes on to say, what is wrong with me? And here's the thing about our sin. It keeps coming and we keep doing it, right? And so the idea here is that we must put our sin to death daily. I think sometimes many Christians will assume that because you have had victory in one area, I have totally wiped myself out in this others. No, you're just prideful and arrogant now, right? Or in addition to that, sometimes our sin will find other different things. We must put our sin to death. We must kill it, not manage it, not excuse it, not ignore it. We must put it to death. And in Romans 8, when Paul uses the phrase or the term, the flesh, we need to understand what that is. He's not just referring to our physical bodies. What Paul means when he writes the flesh, or when we see that, particularly in the New Testament, what the writers are getting at is this internal desire that we still have to rebel against God. I'm like, well, how's that possible? Did you jack it up this morning? That's the flesh, okay? That is the flesh. It is not just our physical bodies. It is internally our desire to want to rebel against God. It's our internal propensity to run from God. And so Paul says that we must put the flesh to death. We must understand how our flesh works. We must understand the heart of what is going on, and we must put it to death. Spirituality will not kill it. Pause right there. If we go back to last week, we looked at verses 16 to 23 in chapter 2, Paul addresses something called syncretism. And remember, syncretism is spam, right? He addresses syncretism and he breaks down these three categories of syncretism. The first one was legalism, that the false teachers at Colossae were saying, hey, if I get it that you're a Christian, but if you want to be more holy, if you actually want to please God, if you actually want to appear more righteous, then you need to follow these rites and traditions and rhythms of the old Mosaic law. And Paul is telling the Colossians, no, you don't. Those have been fulfilled by Christ. Those point us to the person and work of Christ. You don't have to add to your faith because you are already in Christ. Moving forward, Paul addresses something called mysticism, where they were practicing various uh, disciplines to induce visions uh, so that they would appear more holy and they would 
practice some of these religious disciplines because they felt as though they couldn't come before God. And so they needed to have this spiritual experience in order to come before God. And Paul says, no, they're dumb again. This is why, right? There is only one mediator and he is Jesus Christ. And as a result of you, Christian, being reconciled to the Father, you have access to him because of Jesus. You don't need to go through these other pathways. Finally, Paul addresses something called asceticism, more vigorous religious discipline and practices where they were withholding themselves from regular enjoyments. Paul says, that's also dumb. You know why it's dumb? Because these practices have the appearance of wisdom, but they actually don't help in putting your sin to death. Like all of this is spiritual and all of this looks like it makes sense and all of this looks really, really good and it's very impressive and it's very attractive and at the end of the day, it's dead because it does, it does nothing and it has no value concerning the indulgences of the flesh. And so we fast forward to chapter three where he says, put them to death. What do we do about our sin? We don't uh, entertain spirituality for some higher enlightenment. We put these desires to death. That's what we do. And we don't just put sin to death so that we would be morally good. It is so that we would be more like Jesus. It's so that we would be more like Jesus. So how do we put our sin to death? First one is like prayer. I don't, I'm not going to give you a list. I'm just going to talk. First one is prayer. Like, think about it. I, I want you to think briefly, what does your prayer life look like? We regularly talk about how busy the mornings are and how much work we have and how much time we don't have. But the truth is, we do have a lot of time to do a lot of different things because they exist in our lives. Interests and hobbies exist in our lives. But do we consider prayer? Do we consider prayer for the weapon that it actually is? Or what about confession of sin? When we confess our sin to one another? Well, that's really hard. It is. It is very difficult because you strip, your self-righteousness is stripped. Your pride is stripped. You must be vulnerable in putting, what's on, putting stuff on the table. When it comes to confession of sin or prayer, man, digging and diving into the word of God, we all have the same excuses. We don't have time for it. Or maybe you're just arrogant about it because you have all this scripture memorized, but your life is empty and void of practice. We must put our sin to death. We must not only be in a defense position, we must go on the offense. Don't be surprised when, when oftentimes you'll hear Christians say like, oh, I'm struggling with this and I was thrown off. No, you weren't because you're not dumb. You, you know, you know you have a propensity for, for certain things. And if you were thrown off by something, then you don't have that excuse anymore after that first time. No te hagas, bro. We must take our sin seriously. And the reason I think that we don't take our sin seriously or that we don't put it to death is because the water isn't boiling hot enough. 
or because the lightning bolt hasn't struck me or anyone around me. Church, when we refuse to put our sin to death, we are willingly placing ourselves back into our chains. You do not have to be enslaved to sin. We sin because we want to, and putting it to death will be, is a daily battle. That's why our minds must be strong. Christian, is there something that you are not putting to death? Let's go on to this list. Paul breaks these two lists down in terms of sins of sensuality and then relational sins. One has to deal with uh, uh, me as an individual and selfish desires that I have. The other one has to do how we engage with one another. So let's dive into them. Um, I'm just gonna cover them quickly and then I'll, I'll expand on them. So Paul goes on to say, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. He begins, sexual immorality. Now, this was radical when it came to him putting sexual immorality on the, on the table before the Colossians, because in their culture, sexual immorality was actually a virtue, like sleeping around, sleeping with whoever you wanted to, sleeping with as many people as you wanted to. It was actually a virtue. And here Paul is saying, yeah, you need to put that to death. Not only is that sinful, that doesn't honor God, that wasn't what uh, sex was actually meant to be. That's not how he designed it. And so it was very radical for the Colossians to hear that, ironically, as radical it is for us in our day. And so the word sexual immorality, the Greek word for it is the word, and you can hear the English translation, the Greek word is porneia. It means pornographic or pornography. And it basically is this junk drawer of sexually immoral relationships. Sex outside of marriage, sex uh, outside of marriage between a uh, husband and, and, and a wife, uh, homosexuality, bestiality, fornication. Man, you don't have to bait me, just porneia. It's a junk drawer of sexual immoral relationships. And so he says, put this to death. Well, what's interesting and what I enjoy about, this sounds weird, what I enjoy about the word porneia is that it is a junk drawer. It is a catch-all for anything that is sexually immoral. The reason I think that's very helpful is because as Christians, what we will try to do is like, well, where's the line and how does this actually help me and uh, how close can I get to the line? And well, you know, it was only this one time and I don't know how her clothes came off. Like, like, don't be stupid. But that, that's us, right? Like, I'm talking about us, not just an individual. Like, the idea here is, right, like, no te hagas. Like, we know. It is this junk drawer. It is not just this one thing where we can, like, kind of smooth it out and, and, and do some. No, it is this junk drawer for all that dishonors God. The next thing he says is impurity. Impurity refers to, to thoughts or, or imagination of, of fantasy and speech, particularly, again, sexual desires that might even lead into action. The word passion, which is the next one, the word passion here is used negatively. Uh, he is referring to passion in the context of lust. Man, that, that, that lust occupies your mind. Lust occupies, man, at the, the core of your heart. It occupies that position in you. Evil desire is self-serving desires that, that inevitably lead to sinful actions, right? The individual thinking that they can play with fire because they want to be like God, and, and, and it leads to some really, really poor decisions. <clears throat> and the last one, covetedness. 
This is the desire of that which belongs to someone else. Now, here's what I want to talk about regarding all of these, uh, uh, I guess, sins of sensuality. Whether these sins are are physical or, or expressed mentally in our imagination, Paul says that they are idolatrous. That is, we look to these desires or actions to give us something that only Jesus can provide for us. It's unique, isn't it? He boils it all down to idolatry. He boils it all down to to us as the individual. He boils it all down to greed. And when you think about greed, man, that is that one thing that Jesus said. He said a lot of things, but particularly when it came to greed, one of the things in the parables, in, in a parable that Jesus says is, watch out for greed. Man, are, are, are we alert? That's a big list of things that does not surprise us. That's a, that's a big list of things that we all may have even struggled with or, man, that is who we were apart from Christ. And that's not a surprise to us anymore. Right? But listen to Paul's encouragement. Right? Because again, it makes us feel uncomfortable and you kind of just sit there. Right? The next thing is, he talks about the wrath of God. When it comes to the wrath of God, here's what I want you to know. We can actually say a lot concerning the wrath of God, but Christian, here's what I want you to know. I want you to understand that that is where you once stood. You once stood under the wrath of God. Sensuality at one point was your identity. The concern regarding that verse where Paul says, this is verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The concern here is whether or not those, I suppose Christians, who indulge in this sin are actually repentant. That's the concern. To the Corinthians, Paul tells them, examine yourself to see if you actually are in the faith. Because we'll read a list like this and we'll talk about our identity and oftentimes what ends up happening regarding our identity, we'll say, oh man, I'm new, I'm a Christian, Jesus loves me and I can do these things because he's gonna forgive me anyway. No, that is a complete perversion of grace. That who we are in Christ actually transforms us to be more like Christ. It's not this pass to sin. In addition to that, once more, this isn't a surprise anymore. And oftentimes, with many Christians, there is a lack of genuine repentance. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. And for the repentant sinner, remember, your position is now in Christ. Paul says it this way in verse 7. In these, those sins, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. In other words, he's referring to the past. That's who you were. That is who you used to be. That is how you used to operate. And then in verse 9, we skip ahead just a little bit. In verse 9, he says, but now you must put them all away. 
excuse me, that's, that's verse 8. You must put them now away. Going into verse 9, the second half he says, you have put off the old self with its practices. That word practice means like a lifestyle. It's something that was habitual. It was something that was a part of your character. That was your identity. Like the, the belief of this sensuality actually led you to walk and live a certain way. Paul is saying, you're not that anymore. You used to walk in that way, but, but not anymore. The old self has died, and you have put on the new self. Paul says something has changed. That is that they have received Christ, and that is not, no longer who they are. They are no longer under the wrath of God. They are no longer identified by sins of sensuality. They are identified because of Jesus. The Puritan John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Paul says the old self has died and is being put to death. You are putting on the new self, the new self in Christ. He continues, I think this is back at verse eight, but now you must put them all away and he now lists relational sins. Same thing, we're gonna walk through them quickly and then talk a little bit about them in verse nine. Paul goes on to say, Put them all away. This is anger. Now, this is relational sin in terms of how we interact with one another, okay? And so he says, put away anger. Now, the Bible is very clear. You can have anger. You can be angry. What you do with that anger, right, will determine whether it's sinful or not. That's, that's something else, right? Anger is the emotion that uh, it, it's, it's often referred to as the, the emotion of morality. It's the one that says, I'm against that, good or bad, it's the one that says, I don't like that or I'm against that. And so when Paul says, put away anger, he's talking about the individual that is always angry, that is fueled by this emotion, fueled by bitterness, fueled by some sense of arrogance or, or pride, and therefore they walk in anger. It is the individual who's just always quick-tempered, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, I don't think this is up on the screen, you can just listen. In Ecclesiastes 7 says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Paul then goes on to say, wrath, this is the individual or individuals who just blow up on people. In other words, they, they boil over because they're so angry that they blow up on people or that they bottle things up and then they explode on certain individuals just because they are in front of them. Malice, this is intention to do evil. In other words, it is a sin that you're thinking about, that you're actually constructing a plan on and then following through with malice, slander, harmful speech that dishonors a person's character, uh, obscene talk, this is abusive speech. And then he goes on to say, lies, do not lie to one another. And, and he, the way he says it, uh, he doesn't just say, you know, Stay away from lies. It says, don't lie to one another because lies are, or lying is actually a characteristic of Satan. Right? That's, that's what Jesus says about him in John 8. He's the father of lies. And so Paul says, don't lie to one another. That's actually a characteristic, characteristic of the enemy. All of these are relational sins. That is, these are sins that we tragically commit against one another. But we have been given a new life. Christian, you've been given a renewed mind, a new heart with new desires. You've been given new candor. And so how we speak and engage one another is actually a testimony of our transformation. 
When you look in the pages of Scripture, I wanted to highlight two individuals. The first one is the Apostle John. Next one is the Apostle Peter. Both of these dudes had anger issues. In Luke 9, John wanted to burn up the Samaritans. Right? He tells Jesus, should we bring fire down from the heaven to burn them up? And Jesus is like, I hit the bro. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. But then you fast forward to 1 John 4, and he said, beloved, we are loved because Christ has loved us first. Therefore, we must love one another. What happened? What about, what about the apostle Peter? Right? In, uh, in, in John 18, Peter draws his sword and he cuts off a Roman guard's ear. Mind you, he wasn't going for the ear. And then you fast forward to 1 Peter 1, and he says that we must love one another earnestly. What happened to these two individuals? Right? John was part of the, the tag team crew, the Sons of Thunder. What happened? Man, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty and splendor of Jesus is that he could take individuals like John and Peter and completely transform them. Give them a new heart through the work of the Holy Spirit, a new mind, new desires, new candor because of what Christ has done for them on the cross. And so Christian, you do not have to be enslaved to these sins. You don't have to be enslaved to them because the the Spirit of God dwells in you. Not only have you been forgiven of your sin, you have now been given power through the Holy Spirit to say no, to become more like Jesus, to experience transformation, to be sanctified, to be more like Jesus. How we Engage one another, us, the church right here. How we engage one another is a testimony of our transformation. And so Paul concludes in verse 10. Actually, the end of verse 9, I'm so sorry. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. We talked about that a little bit. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Paul concludes by saying that in Christ, we have, and this is ongoing, we have to put off the old self, who we used to be, and put on the new self, that is, who we are in Christ. And the thing is, as we continually put the old self to death and put on the new self, walk in this newness of life, this righteousness that is in Christ, we are going to be putting this to death, walking in life, regularly, daily, ongoingly, with struggles, with defeat sometimes. It's daily. Just like we put our sin to death daily, putting on Christ is daily. And the purpose of it is so that we would continually be renewed. That is being conformed into the image of Jesus. Our identity requires practice. Verse 11, finally, Paul says that identity requires community. Real quick, we've talked about two giant things. Identity requires the right theology. Identity requires practice. Paul concludes by telling us that identity requires community. The reason identity requires community is because the gospel changes everything.
It changes everything. And Paul goes on to demonstrate that that barriers that once existed have now been broken according to Christ's work for and in the Colossians. And so let's look at verse 11. Paul says here, that is in the church here, there is not Greek and Jew. In other words, he is saying all racial barriers have now been broken in light of the gospel. He goes on to say there is neither circumcised or uncircumcised. That is, ethnic or, or, excuse me, ethnic or religious barriers have also been broken. He goes on to say uh, there is neither barbarian nor Scythian. If, if you're unaware with that, barbarians were looked down upon because they were like non-Greeks. Now, this is going to sound bad, but think like a Mexican who doesn't speak Spanish. Right? That's, there you go. That was how they looked at barbarians. Not that you are one if you don't speak Spanish, but if you're convicted, that's not me. Right? Um, and so that's the only thing I can think of. I'm sorry. Um, anyway, so <laughs> it actually doesn't get better. So a Mexican who doesn't speak uh, a, a Spanish or a Scythian. A Scythian was, were individuals or groups of people that were on the outskirts of the city, that they were the marginalized, they were the less than, they were looked down upon. Think someone who lives in Penitas or Granjeno, they're out in the outskirts of the city. We love them. I'm just saying they're out and like, they're out there. Not the guys, come on, right? So, but the idea here is that these cultural barriers have been broken. Like they are no longer defined by some of these uh, identities, right? The, 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 these cultural barriers have been broken. And then he goes on to say slave and free. So these social statuses of these individuals have now been broken. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce on slaves and free. Here's what he says. Within the believing community, slaves, as much as free persons, were brothers and sisters for whom Christ died, Romans 14. A slave might be a leader in a Christian church by virtue of his spiritual stature and ability, and freeborn members of the church would humbly and gratefully accept his direction. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just change everything. It changes how we engage one another. And how we engage one another, our ethics toward one another, creates unity. Unity does not mean uniformity. The Greek was still a Greek. The Jew was still a Jew. Those are now secondary identities. Those secondary identities did not take precedence over Christ, however. If we're going to strive for unity, then we must be in community with one another. See, in community is where we're going to be reminded of our identity. That's theology. In community is where we're going to confess our sin before one another, encourage one another, and strengthen one another's hearts. That is practice. In community is where we're going to stand together as we move forward, engaging the culture around us. That is unity. Identity requires community. And so here are my closing thoughts. Christian, remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. Set your minds on things that are above. Live consistently with your new identity. Jesus has redeemed you. He has made you clean. He has called you his own. Now walk in him. So Christian, 
What is your mind preoccupied with? What aren't you putting to death today, right now? Are you tired from fighting sin alone? Confess. Step into community with brothers and sisters. Do not forget who you are. In fact, Christian, do you forget who you are in Christ? Do you forget what Christ has done for you? He has called you his. And so as we close our time, man, surrender yourself before the Lord. Confess your sin and repent. God will meet you where you are with your grace. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're with us. The Bible teaches, however, that that you are unable to fight sin because you are enslaved to your sin apart from Jesus. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that if you turn from your sin and turn toward the Lord Jesus and repentance and faith, you will receive a new identity, a new heart with new desires, a new community in Christ. Repent and place your trust in the Lord Jesus. Church, the Christian life is never separated or isolated from theology or practice. Let's pray. Lord, receive us in repentance. Save us from temptation. Give us pure thoughts. Grant us tears of repentance, the remembrance of our old self and now our new life in Christ. Grant us the sense of peace. Lord, give us the humility to put to death our self-righteousness, to put to death our pride so that we may confess our sins before you. Holy Spirit, give us humility, obedience, and adoration. Implant your word in the depths of our heart, in our soul, so that we may love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. Obeying your will and bringing you glory and being sanctified for our good. Lord, give us the strength to stand firm in your word. Shield us, Lord, from spiritual attack and sinful desires, for we are hidden in you. May the words of our mouth and meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.